If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. That's what Sun Tzu said, according to the internet, when I googled quotes that were related to the number 100, because Brian, it is our 100th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Have these been battles, Dan? Is that what we've been doing here? Yes. Is it a struggle every time? We're, we're known for disagreeing with each other a lot, being very rude to each other. Lots of fisticuffs. I would say. That's right. It's it's good that we do this at a distance so we can't grab each other's throat. Yeah, I guess that's true. The, the fisticuffs are limited only because this started as a pandemic era podcast. And so our, our spars remain verbal. Yeah, man. A hundred episodes. It is a big milestone. I was telling Brian, I prefix all of our notes and files with zero xx so like our our 53rd episode for example was zero five three and when i first started the podcast this seemed like a bit of hubris how could we possibly make it to 100 episodes but here we are episode one zero zero we made it brian unreal it feels good thanks for sharing the journey yeah and as far as the three digit thing i just chalked it up to your computer science background you know you avoiding the eventual y1c bug <laughs> there's no not going to be any overflow errors until we get to 999 y1c i like that yeah when i sort files it'll do it in the correct order but you're right if we make it to a thousand then we're potentially facing problem i wasn't going to go that far in my numbering that would have been a little presumptuous but you know it feels good to make it here we're going to talk more 100 stuff in November because we're going to make it through Spooktober before we, we celebrate too much on our milestone. That's right. We are in October. Brian's favorite month. I would say probably my, my favorite month, too. How are we feeling this October, Brian? Overall, pretty good. You know, I have said it before, probably, but... I've accumulated so many Halloween picks as far as movies to talk about. It's like that Twilight Zone episode where the guy's stacking up piles of books to read year after year. And ultimately, spoilers, he doesn't get through any of them because he breaks his glasses. But we've gotten through a good number already. Just trust that the backlog on these is pretty much endless. So I do have my picks lined up. I think they're going to be good. I look forward to discussing them. What about you, Dan? Yeah, so... I have a couple of things in mind for, for Spooktober. I think I'm going to get two more picks in, in the month, and I think I know what I'm going to do for the second one of those, but I have to. I have a few potential picks to get for my next one, so we'll see. We'll see where things go. Might choose a, a franchise, a long-running franchise, and marathon it, but I'll, I'll save that for a later episode. Okay, that's intriguing. What else have you been watching lately, in addition to the movie that we're about to talk about? Oh, well, let's see. Last night I watched a 1977 film called Suspiria. Ever heard of it? I did. A long time ago. That's right. So uh, the keenest of listeners will note that the very first episode we recorded, episode 001, we were just getting our sea legs. Maybe we're still getting our sea legs. We talked about 
Dario Argento's 1977 cult hit film Suspiria. And now here on our 100th episode, things come full circle. We are talking about the 2018 remake. But as I said, I did catch up with Suspiria 1977 last night, just so it was fresh in my mind as we talked about 2018. I also listened to our first episode as well. What about you, Brian? Have you seen Suspiria since since two years ago? I haven't, but I did go back yesterday and listen to the very first episode. And then after that, I listened to the next three episodes. So oh, wow. the first four so far. You're re-binging. And I will say that our audio has noticeably improved. It was mostly on my end. At Christmas, the first year, I got a microphone. But, yeah, a couple of those are a little rough. We got better about editing the separate tracks and just having better recording quality overall. But the format has not changed too much. It's pretty consistent. Yeah. We, we've upped our game a little. We, we've gotten to know each other better. We've... Just, you know, you do something a hundred times, you start to feel a little more comfortable with it than the first time you did it. I think that's true, whether it's a podcast, whether whether it's going to battle with Sun Tzu, or whether it's just about anything. Sucking at something is the first step to being kind of good at something. Adventure time, right? Yep. I love that quote. So, um, since we discussed Suspiria back in September of 2020... I have watched 567 feature-length films, and that includes rewatching Suspiria 1977, and that's the number that Letterboxd gave me. I don't even think that counts duplicates, so it's probably closer to not quite 600, but but up there. So I've been doing my movie watching since then. Yeah, that's quite a bit. I don't keep a running tally like that. I think I would be depressed if I did, <laughs> but... That is impressive. And you've been making a lot of documentation of it. I mean, not just the list, but you've got your reviews going. You've got your Letterboxd account. It's impressive. Yeah, we can talk a little bit more about that, I think, once we do our, our retrospection in November, for sure. Before we jump into the movie, I wanted to talk about one thing I was watching lately. I checked out that Dahmer dramatization miniseries on Netflix that dropped. It's made by the... American Horror Story and American Crime Story team, Ryan Murphy and his usual retinue of folks. So it's got Evan Peters in the star role as Jeffrey Dahmer. And it really is like a season of American Crime Story, except it's for Netflix instead of FX, which is what usually runs that show. Not quite as good as the first season of American Crime Story when they dramatized the O.J. Simpson case, but it was still pretty well made and... It just had me wondering, like, what is the point that will reach something where something is actually too dark and, like, fucked up to be a mass consumable pop culture item? How deep does that go into the the actual murders? How vivid? So, yeah, I guess that's the thing, is it's pretty gruesome. I mean, there's a lot of, like, severed body parts and stuff and how you process bones and... But it played down the sexual content. So I think that says something about the American sensitivities. I've heard that before that, like, you know, you can get away with all kinds of violence in an R-rated movie, but, like, show a nipple and it's gone. Uh, whereas right. Europe is the opposite. The puritanical uh, American values. Speaking of which, I watched all three of Robert Eggers' movies 
since we last recorded, or maybe just in the past two weeks, including The Witch, which is really good and is like a a great dissection of those puritanical sexual oppression that are is at the core of American values, or, or at least the birth of American values. Did he do The Lighthouse also? Yes, and The Lighthouse is so good. I, I love The Lighthouse so much. I got to see that one. I was intrigued by what marketing I saw for it. Yeah, two phenomenal performances in that, yeah. But yeah, this Dahmer show, it was like my annual, now traditional, like very dark late September Netflix offering to fixate on because last year on September 17th, they dropped Squid Game and that had me on the edge of my seat. So I don't know. I wonder how many years now this is going to be the tradition that they drop something just super dark and and gripping and it puts you in a weird, dark headspace. My Dahmer media related anecdote is that the star of Teen Beach movie, Ross Lynch, appeared in a Jeffrey Dahmer movie as Dahmer. I think that was like a psychological deconstruction of before he became a murderer. I'm not 100% sure. But I just think it's kind of hilarious that the star of Teen Beach movie later was Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, we got to maybe do an episode where it's a double feature of that with the one where Zac Efron plays Ted Bundy. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Our mold-breaking decom stars playing serial killers. Final thought about the Dahmertization is it stars the dad from Step Brothers as Jeffrey Dahmer's dad. Oh, man. So it's it's like actually a very similar performance if John C. Riley and Will Ferrell weren't just losers, but also gay serial killers. <laughs> That's wild. What's that guy's name? I just watched him in a movie, too. Oh, man, I'm not sure. I know who you're talking about, though. Anyways, Suspiria. So the 2018 remake was made by, I'm going to say it, and Gavin on the, the Discord. By the way, everybody should join our Discord. Gavin gets me on my pronunciations, which which are often bad. Oh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to issue a correction real quick since you brought it up as well. Well, first off, I was about to call you on your pronunciation of Emile Renault, which was like Emile or something. Um, but no, it generally, we allow ourselves we allow each other some mea culpas um gavin does not allow us that luxury which is good it's good that someone is holding us accountable uh, the one i wanted to issue a correction for was the voice actor for gandalf in the rankin bass tolkien specials he was voiced by a guy named john houston not huston and John Huston was actually a prolific and well-regarded film director. He made the Maltese Falcon, believe it or not. Yeah, and, and I think, is he the guy who plays the creepy bad guy in Chinatown, too? Is he? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think he is. Anyways, yeah. Good to have people calling us out. Maybe someone can go listen to all 100 episodes and keep a tally of every single mistake I've made which would certainly surpass the number of episodes. But yeah, so I'm about to butcher another pronunciation, and that is the director of this Suspiria remake. And that is, I did look this one up, the pronunciation on Wikipedia. It's got like the phonetic pronunciation, so I'm going to do my best here. Luca Guadagnino, who is an Italian director, best known for Call Me By Your Name, which is the coming-of-age gay romance story. That was a sensation 
several years ago. I've never seen that one. This is actually my first Luca movie, I guess, except Luca. But have you seen that one, Brian, or, or anything by this guy? No, didn't catch up with that one. But as you said, I did watch Luca, which, <laughs> according to your description, may not have been too different plot wise. Oh, that's right. Yeah. From Call Me By Your Name. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Cal- Calamari By Your Name, you said. Yeah, that was uh, A.O. Scott's title for his review. Um, so, you know, oftentimes when you remake something, it's because you feel like something needs to be freshened. And, and perhaps there's some of that here. But I think uh, Luca Guadagnino just had a lot of reverence for the 1977 Suspiria and just really wanted to kind of interpret it his own ways and add some some of his own themes to it. And I read that he wanted to remake it from the first time he saw it and like take what he loved about it and add in some fresh stuff. So um, it's a pretty interesting uh, remake. And I think what I'm going to do here is maybe focus more on a little bit of compare and contrast, and then we can do a fairly lightweight recap of it, which will give us a, a skeleton to talk about maybe some of our, some of our observations. So, uh, oh, and by the way, I, you can go listen to our, our first episode if you want a little more discussion of the plot of the 1977 Suspiria. But I got to ask you, Brian, do you recommend people go listen to our first episode? What, what was your take on, on how listenable or unlistenable it is? Is that something I should be sell- telling our Discord to go do and prep for this? Well, hopefully they've done it already. I know that some of our biggest fans have. So if you're a true fan, you've probably done this already. But it is kind of a rough listen just in terms of technical elements. But also, this is mostly on me. I stack so many in-jokes and references back, assuming that people know our corpus, that to fully understand the show, you just might have to bite the bullet and and listen to them all. (laughs) Shout out to Will and Sean for that, so thanks. Yeah, we we know that Will and Sean have done it. Uh, They're the only two to cop so far that I've heard. So some of the things that are, are similar to the 1977 film... It does have the approximate same plot of a girl named Susie Banyan, although in, in this one, it's not S-U-Z-Y, it's S-U-S-I-E. That's how you know. Wait, how do you even know that? Was that in the credits? Yeah, yeah and, and I saw it on IMDb, too. Really deviating from the source material there. <laughs> um, it has the same central characters with approximately the same dynamic, so... She's going to a German dance school. There is a recently disappeared student. There's a skeptical roommate who thinks that there might be more than meets the eye. There's a, an overbearing instructor named Madame Blanc. And there's the unseen headmistress, Mother Marcos, whose shadow over the school kind of grows as the, the film goes along. And it still is about kind of a witch coven. And I would say it also ends in a very apocalyptic manner, much like the 1977 film, albeit in a very different kind of apocalypse. Right. The ending of this is bonkers. I mean, the whole movie is pretty strange. Yeah. A couple other similarities to the original. A lot of emphasis on the geometry of the setting. So one thing I really liked about this one is... Many of the scenes are set in their dance practice room, which has mirror walls. 
and they're kind of segmented mirror walls and it makes for a very interesting visual effect just very striking visual whenever they're in these rooms yeah and at least one of their big dances there's this like sort of pentagram diagram on the floor it's got all these triangles like in gold on a black floor and they're dancing like traces the different vertices of this diagram it was pretty interesting Another thing I'd say that they share is a sort of sense that you're watching like a living nightmare. Like there's kind of some dream logic to everything that happens, which we didn't really talk too much about in in the first episode when we talked about 1977. But as I rewatched it last night, it really struck me just the way that like threats kind of appear out of nowhere. And there's a sort sort of absurdism and illogical lack of uh, coherency to what happens there's there's some of that there and there's a lot of that here too for sure it's like the continuity and, and the the threads of thought are just not linear always i would say can i talk about the very beginning of the movie sure so really early on like the first scene of the film we're introduced to this character patricia who's the girl who's like running away from the school and she's being seen by a psychiatrist. And, well, for one, not to steal any thunder, but she drops the revelation that she thinks the school, the dance academy, is run by witches. And this therapy session that she's at, which again is like the first scene of the movie, the editing is so strange, like really disconcerting. And I was trying to figure out what's going on. And I haven't broken it down shot by shot, but I think... What's happening is they're jumping the 180 degree line, which is like the cardinal sin of standard editing. Also, I think there's some of like, they'll cut into a closer shot, but it's on something in the room that wasn't in the previous shot. So just really jumping all around and not letting you get your bearings. I think that's good observation of some things that are similar, which is the use of the technical aspects of filmmaking to sort of disorient you in this world. But I think specifically the editing here is, is really, I don't know what the right word is. Like, I think it's great. It's bravura, but it's also like a lot. It's like really drawing attention to itself in a way that I can see might be exhausting. And that one scene you're right at the beginning, like every shot is like one second long. And then it often like just rotates around the room. Um, But a, a difference in the films. So one thing we complained about in when we talked about the 1977 Suspiria is that they didn't even bring up witches until like 60% into the movie. Here we got it in the first scene. We got witches on the mind right away. So that, that was good. A couple other things different from the original. So you, I want to say famously, famously to me called Suspiria, the reddest movie that you'd ever seen. Actually, you just called it the reddest movie, and that is what we titled our our first episode. And this is very much not the reddest movie. Yeah, where is the red, Dan? I was waiting for it. Well, spoiler. (laughs) We'll see if we got it by the end. But it's a very desaturated look overall. Lots of browns and cool grays out in the rain and stuff. Not, Not a lot of color until certain scenes. 
No, very different because that was like the key takeaway for me from the Dario Argento was like everything you got like colored light bulbs and most of the time it's red. Sometimes you got everything is blue, but always color. Another major difference in this film, maybe the biggest difference. So I would say the 1977 Suspiria fairly light on thematic material and you're going to kind of have to go to subtext if you want thematic material this movie wants to be about everything it's about like motherhood lots of nazi shit in there like a whole decay of generation from the early post-war era to the 70s because this is set during the german autumn um just like there's some definitely a lot more like consideration of sex and how it destroys the body in this a lot of stuff that that the film is trying to tackle here right i was like trying a lot of the time to figure out when exactly it was supposed to be set and now yeah i do see that it's 1977 the year the original movie came out but they talk about the war a lot almost like it just happened Something that was throwing me is there's like headlines in the news about the RAF and I didn't know what that was. To me, the RAF is the Royal Air Force, the British Air Force, and they were talking about them committing terrorist acts. And I'm like, what the heck? When did the British Air Force do that? But it's not the British Air Force. I looked it up. It's this leftist terrorist organization rabble rousers they're called the red army faction or the Bader meinhof group and yeah they were a group in germany in the 70s yeah it's interesting that specific aspect is kind of the the historic backbone it's like to try to give you a sense of place but for me i mean i wasn't alive when that happened and to be honest i am underread on my european history even recent european history so I kind of have a vague gist of of what that's all about and how it's kind of like a leftist reaction to lingering Nazi sympathies, I think, is the gist of it. I wish Gavin was on here because I'm sure he'd, he'd give me the whole story. But definitely like the psychic trauma of Nazis is like the a driving force of all of this. You're right. They do talk about the war as if it just happened. And as a result of all that content, the, the movie's dragged out to a pretty long film, actually. The first one was barely over an hour and a half. This one is past two and a half hours. So for me, we're squarely in long movie territory at that point. Definitely. The title card says it's a story in six acts. And I was like, six acts? Come on. <laughs> Do you really need that many acts? No, too many acts. I'm out. Three-act story, in and out. As I was moving ahead, occasionally I saw brief glimpses of beauty had 12 acts. And if you got half as many acts as that, you're still in dangerous territory. Actually, it is all, It is about uh, half the length of that movie, so it fits pretty well. Yeah, lines up. Another thing is there. there's actual dancing in this. That struck me about Suspiria, the 77 one, when I rewatched it last night. Not too much actual dancing in it despite being set at a dance school. Now, this one's not drowning in dance, but it has some legitimate dance numbers, and they're, like, weird. Yeah, so they're always practicing without music. The instructor says she likes to practice without music, 
And like on the one hand, I can kind of understand that because you got to like get the rhythm very interior. It's got to be like in your bones. But then at the end, when they have their big dance performance, there's no music. Like there's nothing for the audience to hear other than them thumping around on the floor. That I thought was pretty weird. Yeah. A lot of thumping. And it's just not elegant dance. It's like, it is kinetic and visually pleasing, but like lots of thumping, as that's a good word for it, and like throwing themselves on the ground. It's like impact dancing. It's kind of weird. And they wear these really interesting, almost like fleshy looking garments that have like long red strands. Uh, there we get some of your red, Brian. Right. Yeah, that's at the finale performance. They do have these like intestine dresses. It's all very minimal. It's like Slave Leia, but intestines all over the place. Yeah, that would have been a different Return of the Jedi. But yeah, last thing before we maybe talk about the actual story, which can be a springboard for some of our reactions to specific stuff that happened. I just want to share how I watched this film. So I found it streaming online, but not an authorized source. And, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So when I was watching it, it was high quality and it seemed right. It even had a subtitle attached to it, an English subtitle attached to it, which was perfect. The problem, when they're speaking German, there was no subtitle whatsoever. Now, what I eventually pieced together after talking with Brian is that probably I was watching some international version where they assumed I could speak German or understand German at least. And so... When I was reading English subtitles, when they were speaking English, but nothing when they were speaking German, I was actually missing out. I didn't know if I was supposed to know what they were saying, but it turns out that I was. And I think uh, I probably missed out on some of the context and some of the cues there. I was able to piece most of it together, but if I watch it again, I'll definitely find one that has the proper German to English subtitles for when they're actually speaking German. Right. So this, I think, was an Amazon production at least in part so it is up on amazon prime I, i'm pretty sure i saw amazon in the opening credits is it free to watch if you got prime I, it is yeah mm, i should have just done that i think i have that but so that's how i was watching and at this point as a cinephile i've just got captions on pretty much all the time so it, i just don't risk missing something the way that mine worked was like when they were speaking english the closed captioning would be down there. And then when they would start talking German, which is like a solid third of the movie, there's a ton of German speaking in this film. When that would happen, there would be like garish white and red letters at the bottom of the screen, which I assume were part of the theatrical release. And then that was like if main characters were talking and then if people were just like chattering in the background, it would go back to the standard closed captions and say... Speaking in German, but I was able to follow most of what was being said because I, I did have those captions. Yeah, there, there's only one scene where I feel like I missed a really crucial detail, but I eventually figured it out. But you mentioned in theaters, one thing of note is this was actually released to theaters, but was a huge flop and money loser. And so I think Luca Guadagnino wanted to do like a franchise of Ar Argento remakes and i think there's like a post-credit scene of Susie. well we'll talk about it when we get there it's not even that much of a post-credit scene but i think it was supposed to be sequel bait or something like that 
but we'll see. Well, that's something I only learned in the lead up to this week is that Suspiria, the original, was kind of the first chapter of a trilogy that Argento made. He made a movie called Inferno, and then he did one called Mother of Tears. And it's like this expanded universe about witches. But it's not the same characters, right? No, but each one revolves around a central witch. It says a triumvirate of ancient witches who do get mentioned in this movie. So that was something I was surprised by was that uh, Guadagnino was very knowledgeable and reverent of the original Argento films. Well, let's talk through the 2018 remake of Suspiria. Uh, I'll keep this fairly light. But as we mentioned, uh, Susie Banyan so one bit of detail we get is that she was a former Mennonite. Um, so we kind of see her getting some flashbacks to her youth. Specifically, she grew up in Ohio. That is in the first line of the Wikipedia article. So that's why I know that one. Yeah, it's like basically Amish. Yeah. And she goes to Germany to join the Marcos Dance Academy. And again, this is right around the time that another student, Patricia, disappears, which, as Brian said, our opening scene was Patricia, played by Chloe Moritz Grace. Some interesting names in this. We had Chloe Moritz Grace. It stars Dakota Johnson as Susie Banyan, who is best known for the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy. But I I just saw her in uh, an indie picture this year called Cha-Cha Real Smooth, and she was good in that. She's grown on me. Did you see any of the Fifty Shades films? No, I didn't. So I, I shouldn't badmouth her. But how about you? I did see, I saw Fifty Shades of Grey when I had a annual pass for all of 2015 and just went and saw every movie that the theater had. So I did see that one. I always think it's funny when that song comes on the radio, the da-na-na, da-na-na, it's the color of your blood. Touch me like you do. Ta-ta, touch me like you do. You know, it's the original single from the credits, but the movie it's from is Fifty Shades of Grey. I always think that's funny. I mean, uh, yeah, long history of credits songs outliving the cultural cachet of their movies. That's that's true. Also co-starring uh, Mia Goth as Sarah Sims, who's the roommate. I, I think she's actually a roommate in here. I wasn't 100% sure of that, but... Mia Goth had a huge 2022. She was in X, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie about a porno chic shoot, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, did you see that one, Brian? I did not. The only time I've heard Mia Goth's name is on the Buzzed On Movies podcast because they check out everything horror that comes out pretty much, and that's definitely been a name on their tongues. Yeah. And then she also appeared in Pearl, which was the surprise prequel that came out also this year to X. So she's she's definitely uh, had a good few years since the Suspiria film. And then the other major star is Tilda Swinton plays Madame Blanc, the dance instructor who takes uh, Susie under her wing. And uh, good performance by Tilda Swinton. One thing I, I didn't realize until I was reading about it later is that she often pairs with Luca Guadagnino. I don't know if, if she was in Call Me By Your Name, but I think she's been in almost all of his other movies. Oh, interesting. So then here's just my train of thought as this movie is starting. We got, we got a really impressive cast, 
and then we we have that psychologist, the one who's in the opening scene, talks in a very soft spoken way. I was like, who is this guy? It's a really interesting performance. There's like just something slightly bizarre about his energy. Who is this guy? And then I was scrolling through IMDb and I was like, what? Every single cast member is female. I don't know who this is. And then finally, like a half hour in, I figured it out because I looked it up on Wikipedia. It's Tilda Swinton. She's playing the the psychologist too. This was mind blowing for me. This was like a twist in itself. Right. So I saw this early on because Amazon has little factoids that grow across the screen as it plays. So it said that, but at the same time, I don't know. I wasn't a huge fan of this because the makeup and the costuming to turn her into the dude is great. Looks amazing. But then every time she opens her mouth, it shatters the illusion because you can tell that it's like just a woman's voice. Just it's not it's not a man's voice. Yeah, it's it's definitely a weird energy. And I can see I can see it being off putting. It's just not convincing. It's like they put in all that work to make the costume look so realistic. And then, you know who I thought it was the very first time she talked was Glenn Close, because Glenn Close kind of has a history of doing that, like playing drag roles. Um, she's in, I mean, she did that whole movie that was called something like Albert Knob. And she's in Hook as one of the pirates. So I was like, oh. That's probably going close, but then I saw the little thing go across the screen that it was uh, Tilda Swinton in a double role, and she may even have more roles that she does in this movie. So I want to ask you something. When you say it goes across the screen for you, is this like as the movie is going? Is it like MTV pop-up video? It's if you tap the screen to like see the time bar. There's a there's a sidebar going down the left side that has factoids. Okay. And also it shows who is on the screen at any given moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. Mine doesn't have the fact bar. It does have the cast. But that's interesting. Okay. So it's not like it's always there. It's only when you're you're tapping it. I see. Right. Gotcha. So Susie kind of forces her way in. And, and when she joins the academy, she like immediately <laughs> volunteers herself to, to be the lead in the, the dance show, which... And everybody's just cool with that. They all treat her as the protagonist immediately. My takeaway was like people were sort of intimidated, like people being the other students, like there's some bad juju around the lead role or like pressure that goes with it or something. But yeah, it is kind of odd how she just goes right in and immediately becomes friends with with Madame Blanc here. We see fairly early on here that there is magic afoot because we get a really... Uh, striking death scene. I think it's the first death of the movie that we see on screen because this one student kind of has a breakdown and runs away and she gets locked in another dance room. And we see Dakota Johnson, Susie Banyan doing her, her dance. And it's like pulling a force on this other dancer who's getting tugged around a room and like smashing into the glass windows, but like more so like contorting her body in this it's almost like a body horror like ribs are popping out it's it's gruesome man right it was really gross and very good practical effects like she's getting all bent out of shape literally and what really got me 
was like, yeah, her rib cage collapses or something. Like her, her torso like crushes in, and then she's like urinating and vomiting everywhere, and that squicked me right out. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. It was something. Um, I, I thought this was like the most memorable scene, except the the climax, which we'll get to. But the movie doesn't go too long without us knowing pretty clearly that the entire staff are practicing witches, which is something that, you know, we've kind of known from that first scene. And whenever they have victims, they get dragged away on meat hooks, which is also kind of squip inducing to use your term. Yeah. Very gross. And I thought unnecessary (laughs) because this girl is already dead on the floor. Basically. I mean, she's really, really wrecked. She's not quite dead. But then, yeah, all the teachers whip out their big hooks. And to pull her away, they stick her with these hooks. And so now she's leaving a big messy blood trail. It's like you're not applying any mechanical advantage. Just pick her up with your hands. And then you don't have to clean up this blood trail later. (laughs) She's not going to go anywhere. You don't need to stick her with a bunch of hooks. Maybe there's magic in the hooks or something, Brian. I don't know. Another one later when they're kind of doing some investigation... Dakota Johnson and Mia Goth are like investigating Madame Blanc's room and Dakota Johnson gets like a peek through the wall and sees that a cop who we've seen a little bit before is like paralyzed and incapacitated and a bunch of the witches are poking his dick with the hook. And this was another one that that got my skin crawling because he's just standing there like not moving and so vulnerable. What was weird to me about this scene was Susie's reaction because she's like in the library with one of her friends and she looks like through a stack of books and on the other side of the bookshelf is all these teachers, yeah, poking the guy in the dick and he's like frozen in place and all the teachers are laughing maniacally and her her reaction, Susie's reaction is to like awkwardly chuckle like, oh, you guys. Yeah, very weird. Whereas if I was in this situation, I would at the very least pull the friend over and be like, are you also seeing this? But she doesn't do that. What the fuck is this shit? Yeah, I think I don't know exactly why. There's stuff here that doesn't make sense to me. Very disorienting. But I think part of it is like Susie is more. Well, we'll see, certainly, but she's kind of more loyal to Madame Blanc in particular than she's letting on to other students. Like, I think she's kind of connected with, with Tilda Swinton is like grooming her for something, the lead, but we get the sense that there's something else. And that's going to kind of be the thrust of the climax here. Yeah. They got kind of a Willy Wonka, Charlie thing. Yeah. There's also a scene, and this was the one that was kind of botched by my subtitles experience, but we see the teachers in like a break room or something and they're voting on something. I don't know, Brian, in the subtitles, is this clear what they're voting for, like head of the coven? But they're voting either for Blanc or Marcos, and, and Marcos wins the vote. Right. Yeah, I think it's just who's going to lead the academy and, by extension, the coven. Yeah, okay. That was one that I missed, and I was like, what, what's actually going on here later? And I finally pieced it together. So they're working on this one dance with, as Brian put it, what did you call it? The uh, the intestines dresses? Right. So they got these like red ropes dangling all over them, just barely covering their bits. 
uh, but like dragging around on the floor and they look like guts. And Sarah, that's that's Mia Goth's character and, and the roommate of Susie, who's been getting deeper into trying to sniff out the, the witches uh, in conjunction with the, the psychologist who's recruited her. She gets some sort of like weird mental spell and then she's like going through this disorientation where she's like, I don't even know exactly how it happens. Like she steps like over a ledge or into a hole, like on the, as the dance is about to start, like right off stage and she gets this real gnarly shin break where like the bone pops out, but then she like stumbles onto stage somehow and like collapses as part of the dance. Very weird. Yeah. There was a lot going on here. So like for one thing, there's too many missing girls too many girls who wander off and get killed but not quite and then come back later so i was i was very confused and i actually listening back to episode one a little of this happened in the original where we were like getting people mixed up and because there is patricia who runs off at the very beginning and then there's olga who is suspicious and then there's sarah who is also suspicious and eventually all three of them are like in critical states but not quite dead and they've all been like reassembled here at the end but yeah this one girl i think it's sarah is like exploring behind the scenes of the dance show like she's supposed to be out on stage but she's backstage looking around and yeah she falls into this like trap door and breaks her leg at which point some of the staff tracks her down and they like magically heal her leg but not enough and they just kind of, they like patch the skin over the splintered bone and then they shove her out onto the stage. So now she's like part of the show and she's not in great shape still. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre and unsettling too. So what really creeped me out and I don't even understand who it was or what was happening, but like while Sarah was back there looking around, this body starts coming towards her from the background and it's this person with no hands or feet so they can't stand up and that was really creepy to me i didn't like that i don't even know who that character was because she like runs away from her she scoops up patricia or whatever she finds the like mummified patricia who's again still not quite dead and gets away from that crawling thing oh that's right and this is sort of a callback to something that happens in the 1977 where towards the end, Susie discovers, I think it's the body of Sarah. It's one of the fellow students who had disappeared in that one, too. And that's like another creepy gross out moment. So this kind of mirrors that. But yeah, so kind of as this is happening or maybe I think it's shortly afterwards after the this first show, which otherwise goes well, uh, they have like a celebratory dinner afterwards but but we now see Dr. Klemperer, who is, again, Tilda Swinton, the, the psychologist, the light feminine voice that we were talking about. And he sees his long dead wife who had died, you know, again, it's like in the war, which at this point is 30 years ago. Well, he wasn't sure that she was dead. He had been looking for her for a long time and, you know, fate up in the air good chance she's dead but he wasn't sure he didn't know what her fate was and so now suddenly she's there and but did you did you recognize who who played the wife i don't think so who is it uh it is jessica harper who is the star of suspiria 1977 whoa 
I thought that was a cool cameo. Yeah, I never would have figured that out, but that is cool. And I had seen that she had an appearance in the movie, and as soon as she popped up, I was like, that's got to be her. She's got like the same kind of shiny brown eyes and a look of beauty that has aged gracefully. And sure enough, it was her. So, and she basically says like exactly what he is dreaming that she would always say that she's reappeared. He kisses her. They're so happy. And then he, she like leads him somewhere and then she disappears and then he gets abducted. And I was kind of confused in part because I had missed a lot of the context of this because a lot of this was in the subtitles. So like, I kind of knew that he was searching for someone and I kind of knew that she was it. But this is why I was a little confused on exactly the nature of the the missing wife. So, yeah, I can only imagine because like 30 to 35 percent of this movie is (laughs) in German. So. So, okay, so he actually thought she might have still been alive. So this wasn't just like a fantasy come to life. Right. That was kind of how it played with without the actual text, with just the context clues. Yeah, it was like they got split up. I guess maybe they're Jewish, I think, is the implication. But they were being persecuted by the Nazis, and at some point they got split up. And he didn't know what happened to her, but he's been looking. Gotcha. That makes a little more sense now why he, being Tilda Swinton, actually reacted this way. Because they get to the the academy, and she abruptly disappears. Where'd she go? And then the witches come out and swarm him in like this harpy sort of way and pull him into the school. So now he's sucked into whatever's happening there. And then that night, Susie, not 100% sure how, like she kind of is drawn out of, I think it's out of bed, but she's kind of like wandering around and she ends up finding this witch ritual that's going on. She's kind of like drawn to it. A witchual. Yeah. And, and this is where we get the, the climax, this really creepy, memorable scene. So let, let's talk about some of the things that we see here. So. First, we see Mother Marcos, and I thought it was pretty cool that they were able to cast Jabba the Hutt in this movie. Right. So I was really confused at this point. Well, I mean, I knew who it was, but what, like, pulled me out for a moment is that early on, we hear some teachers talking about Mother Marcos, who's the headmistress, and they say that her body is a prison now. And a couple times throughout the movie we get cutaways to this one woman who's like lying in a bed. And I thought that was mother Marcos, but I think who that was, was Susie's own mother, like an Amish woman who was, I guess, incapacitated in a different way. And I don't know what was going on there, but then suddenly she walks into this inner sanctum and there's this straight up monster sitting there. This, like, gross boil of an old woman. Like, rotted flesh. Yeah, just sagging all over the place. Yeah, and also overweight somehow. So, like, maybe it's just the sagging, I'm not sure. But, like, really, it's almost like a puppet. It's like, you wouldn't necessarily think that this was a person playing Mother Marcos, but it was a person. And who was it? Well, it was Tilda Swinton in her third role in the movie. Yeah, we're getting into Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove territory. Or Eddie Murphy and the Nutty Professor. Tom Hanks and Cloud Atlas. Or what's the one, the the Christmas Carol we watch? The Polar Express. Oh, yeah, Jim Carrey and... No, that's not the one. 
Rich Little and Rich Little's Christmas Carol is what I was going for. Oh, that one as well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, three roles for Tilda Swinton. But yeah, not just this Jabba the Hutt woman. So I'm pretty sure she is naked, but so is, like, everybody in this scene. And, like, from the beginning of it, the Fifty Shades girl is walking down the hallway, and she's in this, like, nightgown, but she might as well not be, because it's, like, not there at all. It's, like, invisible. But then she walks into this room where they're doing this dance ritual, and it's, like, ten just totally naked women doing this intense dance. Yeah, I think it's it's very intentionally kind of evoking the dance style that we had seen in the dance performance. It's like they're connected, you know, because it has the same kind of thumping to it. Like they're getting up. It's almost like they're doing burpees. They're like jumping up and jumping down and smacking the floor. But like some of them are kind of spread eagle and like making this weird pentagramic shape. Um, just a very unsettling appearance. Have you seen Midsommar? I haven't. That also has unsettling nudity in it. Uh, but this one, I think, topped it, actually. This this one really, uh, everything about it is just designed to put you on edge. And I, I don't think I've mentioned him on air before, but one sort of friend that I've made online, his name is Hunter Allen, and he, he has a blog where he writes these really good film reviews. And I read his review of this, and one thing he said that I thought was was really evocative about this scene is that it's also kind of like a subversion of the male gaze because like when you're watching beautiful women dance like you know dance is sex and so you're like kind of connecting that in your brain even if it's subconsciously like the sexiness of what you're watching in most you know in many cases not necessarily in every single dancing scenario but this is kind of like weaponizing that by like stripping them of their clothes and making it into this freakiest thing that you could even imagine with like the, these flailing bodies around really artsy stuff. And you know, you don't watch this with your kids. Yeah. That was my main takeaway. <laughs> it's, it's not safe for work. Just last week we watched fantastic planet and I was watching a clip of that on YouTube and somebody in the comments said, somebody was carrying this around in their head. And that's what I thought watching this scene. <laughs> it's like somebody pictured this and then they went into work and they told 15 naked women to do this. Right. And so we get our we get a bunch of twists in a row here. So the first twist we get is what has Susie been groomed for this whole time? Well, it is to be the new body vessel for Mother Marcos. So she is going to be Mother Marcos's body and... They make a big deal out of you have to let yourself go. You won't be in this anymore. It'll just be Marcos in you now. It's the way that the rise of Skywalker ends. Oh, boy. I don't even remember that. So what's the connection there? Who says that? So does Palpatine say that? Palpatine's plan is that he's going to go into Ray's body. He's like a shell and she approaches him at the end and he's like, oh, yes, this is all part of my plan because now I will live in your body. So, yeah, it's that's the idea here. And Tilda Swinton, who we know is like sort of a competitor to Marcos, but also a companion. Interesting relationship going on there is like, I don't think you should do this. This doesn't feel right. This feels like a mistake, which I think Marcos takes as jealousy that she's going to get the new body and be more powerful than ever before. But then we get our second twist, which is that 
everything is red all of the sudden. Boom, no red all movie. Then boom, everything's red. The entire screen is tinted red. And Susie outs herself. She's not actually Susie Banyan, or at least not exclusively Susie Banyan. She's also Mother Suspiriorum, who is an ancient witch, one of like the founding witches. I, I don't know exactly what they are. Like the the main witch that uh, Marcos and the whole dance academy kind of worship. So like out of the Argento trilogy, this is like the one that Suspiria is in honor of, I suppose. So she's actually like Hedwitch, who's kind of snuck her way in here. And she summons this form of death to kill Marcos and all of Marcos's supporters. So just real bombshells and violence coming at you one after another here. What do you think of what was going on here, Brian? It's crazy. It is very red. So I was glad we finally got that color. What disappointed me a bit is that we have had a lot of practical effects so far this movie. So like the scene where the girl's body is getting all distended and, and ripped apart by the dance moves. Like I imagine some of that is digital, but you can tell there's a lot of great makeup work and prostheses and like actual liquids spraying around. But then, you know, we get to the end and we see this Marcos bodysuit that's like this gross, saggy zombie body that's really quality in terms of, you can tell there's actually like rubber latex there. Uh, but then now when this death storm starts happening, it just goes all completely digital and I thought it looked awful. So Tilda Swinton gets like a spell cast on her that we think kills her. It like causes her neck to explode and it's just this bad cloud of digital blood, like the worst Walking Dead effect. And then this Grim Reaper thing, which is pretty cool. It's got this like, it's like a skull, very skeletal Grim Reapery, but it still has patches of hair hanging from the skull. And that's pretty gnarly. That looked great. But then as she's going around, like giving the black spot to these Marcos supporters and killing them, their heads explode. And every head explosion is just this digital effect that I was not a fan of. It, it also does something weird where it like makes the frame rate choppy. It's like, I, I feel like this is, it's almost like an effect you would throw on like one of your basic video editor. It's like, turn on this filter. And I thought it, I think it's intentionally supposed to be like very artificial and alien and like removing you from any sense of, naturalism naturalism and immersion right it kind of reminded me of like the cliched way they show bombs going off in movies where it's like everybody's ears are ringing and everything goes into slow motion and like most of the sound effects get quiet it was like that yeah slowing down and what i thought was cool is that all the dancers keep dancing as everybody's head is exploding and like the world is slowing down yeah and I think it's the Marcos supporters who die because I don't think every single one of them dies, but a lot of them die. I don't exactly know. Right. It's just everybody who voted for Marcos in that election. So I guess the idea is you got to purge your your dark demons of a generation past. We got to vote Mitch McConnell out of office. That's the takeaway or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Have you seen that Key and Peel sketch of the like gymnastics dancers in the 80s. No. And somebody, fi one of them finds out that like 
his family was in a car crash and he wants to like leave but people are holding up cue cards that say keep dancing no i haven't seen that that's what i was thinking of in this is that's pretty funny whatever happens keep dancing <laughs> and then we get this little epilogue where dakota johnson uh, not 100 percent clear to me whether she was always mother suspiriorum or whether mother suspiriorum kind of like comes into her the body at some point but she basically reveals to the psychologist that your wife died at a constant concentration camp which would have probably had a little more impact to me if uh, I had been reading the German translation all the way up to it, because I didn't have too much detail about that relationship, as mentioned. So we get some closure on that, and then the movie closes first with like this zoom out in the future on a heart between... It's like, an ing- like a carved into the concrete of the psychologist and his wife, and then a closing shot of just like a almost like a sequel bait like oh there's more to the story here of dakota johnson looking out at something yeah literally just looking at something that you don't see what it is and she doesn't have much of a reaction i wish there had been something more to it you know yeah and i googled it i said what is the meaning of suspiria 2018 post credit scene and the answer was well luca guadagnino saw this shot from something that was cut and thought that Dakota Johnson looked very in, intriguing. Like she had a s- deep secret on her mind and thought that that would be a good way to make the audience think that there was more going on. I was like, okay, that's kind of bullshit. It's like, <laughs> you didn't ha- actually have anything there at the end. It reminds me of the Simpsons adaptation of the Raven when he goes to the door and there's just an empty hallway and Bart says, you know, what would have been scarier than nothing anything (laughs) that's the gist of it yeah but that's how suspiria 2018 ends our 100th movie actually our 146th movie because we've rated more than one thing on multiple films maybe 145th i'm not sure but somewhere around there yeah quite a few it's a milestone though the hundredth time we've met like this it's been a little bit over two years because we've had various specials and things we've there's been a couple times when we've split an episode up and dropped it on the podcast app over two weeks instead of one but we've been consistent we've kept up with it yeah pretty much we're glad that you've kept listening so brian was there any other thoughts you wanted to share about the movie or are you ready to dive into is it good i think i'm ready to take the stage it was interesting listening back to our first episode when I literally wrote down, is it good? Like the 10 minutes before we were about to record and like what the different ratings were. And I even mentioned that on the first episode, like, I don't know if we're going to keep doing this, but we're just, we're just trying it out. And here we are hundred episodes later. Not only are we still doing it, but we, I don't think we've changed a single thing about it. So, but here we go. Is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating Toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Brian, I will ask you: Is Suspiria, the 2018 version, good? Maybe I'm coming down on this one a little bit too hard, but uh, I think I'm going to land on a three out of eight, a not not good. And this is mostly because it's really long, and I was confused a lot of the time. But I have to concede that it's really artful. Like, a lot of craft went into making this film. 
it's a pretty big cast and they're doing some pretty extreme things so in practice i admire that just they had to come to work and like break themselves literally break dance and it's visually striking even if i lost a lot of the narrative threads so that's my feeling where are you at dan my only disappointment, Brian, is that you did not give this a four out of eight, which is what you gave Suspiria in 1977, because I was a little higher on it than you were. I actually liked it quite a bit. I, I was pretty thoroughly immersed. Um, it's got a thick sense of dread, and I was always curious what it was going to do. Like Sometimes when there's a movie that's a remake or a story I know, I'm just kind of waiting because I already know the beats, and it's just like, oh, let's see... How are they going to do it? And I'm just waiting to get to the parts that are actually interesting without actually caring much about the story or how we're going to get there. Here, that's not true, though. Despite kind of knowing it, I, I was very curious what was going to happen at any point and really just immersed in the, the texture of it. That said, it is way too long. There is some stupid and confusing stuff in it. I think it takes itself a little too seriously, like with all the themes it tries to have in there. I did like it, though, so I'm going to give it uh, like right on the edge of a five and a six out of eight. I'm going to land on a low six out of eight that is very good for Suspiria 2018. So if you had put it at a four out of eight, we would have mirrored exactly the ratings we gave it in our first episode, which is I gave Suspiria 1977 a six out of eight very good, and you gave gave it a four out of eight good-ish. But alas, we, we have to speak to our what we actually feel here, and it sounds like I think both of us, uh, certainly for me, I would put... Suspiria 1977 at this point at, at a high, very good. I liked it a lot more this time, or even more this time than the first time I watched it two years ago. But um, I, I would put the 77 one above the 2018 one, although in the same approximate tier. But it sounds like that you're a little higher on the 1977 one. Uh-huh. I missed the super saturated colors. We did get a little bit at the very end. But something we haven't even said yet is the other big hallmark of the 70s Suspiria is the Goblin soundtrack and that's not here there's very minimal music there's like not a lot of music there's not even when they dance that's a good point I had it in my notes I forgot to bring it up yeah which the score for this one was actually written by Tom York who's the lead singer and songwriter of Radiohead I didn't know he did film stuff but he also has a song somewhere around the climax that I recognize his voice oh right what I thought was interesting about that was like the words are surprisingly specific to what's going on. Like I could tell that it was written for the movie. It's the uh, European art house version of the recap rap. <laughs> it's like we are demons doing stuff with our bodies. <laughs> I'm going to have to go listen to it. A little more melodic than that. But <laughs> if you pay attention to the lyrics, those are the idea. And that's Suspiria. So, Brian, we're at spooky season. We're heading to, to 101. What's going to be our, our, our next film? What's going to be our, our second spooky season? Pick? That's right. We're now well into the triple digits. <laughs> Deep in there, yeah. With the next assignment, it's going to be a movie called Ghost Watch. It's a British TV movie. It's a pseudo-documentary. You might call it a mockumentary, but it is a spooky film. And it was aired on the BBC only once because it caused an uproar. It's kind of 
a return to form of the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast from Halloween 1938. But, you know, decades later, Halloween night 1992, they ran this. And it's a mock paranormal investigation show gone wrong. Well, I am thoroughly intrigued, so uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our 100 episodes so far and, and our revisit of Suspiria, this time the remake. And we hope you stick around for the 100 to come. And Dan, I think you'll probably like this ghost movie more than the last one I recommended. Uh, was that Amazing World of Ghosts? Yep. It, it would be tough for this one to place below that one. But yeah. All right. Thanks, Brian. I'll talk to you next week. And listeners, thank you as well. Good night. Thank you.